Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Jared Woodard of Bank of America Securities, head of the Research Investment Committee, joins us right now. Jared, the difference between a sustainable rotation and another head fake. Draw the distinction for us. Look, we keep it simple here. I I think any move to value, any rotation to super cyclical sectors is going to be a tactical short-term flash in the pan uh, until you have some real structural changes in the economy that can broaden out the economic base and and provide some real ballast that would would move growth uh, meaningfully higher. Until then, I think these are all sort of noisy uh, moves that a lot of investors can ignore. I'm struggling also because yields are higher. That should be good for the cyclicals. That should be good for the banks. Why is that not another sign, perhaps, of outperformance, given the fact that all things being equal, there isn't necessarily any reason behind this rally? Well, as you mentioned a moment ago, I mean, there's a lot of cross currents in the bond market right now. There's a lot of confusion about what supply will be like in in the future. And I think most importantly of all, the sense that if yields really do rise in a meaningful way, that the Fed will come in with yield curve control and 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 cap you know any any big move uh, anyway. So the long term uh, benefits, the, the 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 correlation that you might expect between yields um, and and uh, and banks and other cyclical sectors, I think, is not going to be what it once was. Um, until, again, until the economy is structured in a very different way. You mentioned the financials. That's the problem, isn't it? We saw it in yesterday's session. The financials can outperform on the way down. Can they outperform in an up market, Jared, given the weightings of big tech? Can they? There's a few things that I think are special about financials that can that can work. If you start to see um, deposit growth uh, slow, you start to see you know loan growth pick up maybe in the you know later part of this quarter. Um, then there, I think there are some some moves that can happen in financials that are worth taking a peek at. But for a medium or longer term oriented investor, um, this is a, a a moment in which you know we're much more concerned that you know secular stagnation plus epic stimulus equals a really epic. Uh, bubble in in growth stocks in tech and healthcare. We calculated that uh, you know tech broadly defined plus healthcare accounts now for more than 54% of the market cap of the S&P 500. That's the highest ever. And just incidentally, you know if you if you sustain the current pace that we've seen this year, um, you know tech and healthcare would 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 account for the entirety of the market by 2024. Jared, I'd have more faith in a sustainable rotation if we had a deal down in Washington D.C. We don't. Are you surprised by the calm around that currently? I am actually. I think that the the you know a lot of investors are watching this really closely. They understand that more stimulus is necessary. They understand that you know two hundred dollars a week unemployment insurance is a disaster. Three hundred dollars is tough. Four hundred dollars might keep us on the footing that we are um, at today. Uh, but right now we've got none of it. And um, I think there's a there's a real sense of watching and waiting. And, and if it, we go into another week of um, of no progress on talks, then I think you'll start to see the market care a bit more. All right, care a bit more. How does that translate? In other words, how big of a sell-off could we see if there is no deal after the next week or so? In September 2008, when the House voted down TARP the first time, you recall, you know, the S&P fell, I think, about 23 percent in the in the sessions after that, uh, just for context. I'm not saying we'll, we'll get the same move, you know, this year, but I think that there is a sense in which if it really does look like policy is going to fail, the market can can care a lot and care very quickly. Um, so if, if you know, it may, it may be a scenario in which the market has to impose a little bit of discipline on, on Washington and you see a big equity sell-off that sparks finally 
uh, uh, some level of compromise. We told investors, you know, this week we think it's a, it's a Q3, whether it's a hedging uh, risk or a buying opportunity, maybe depends on your time frame. But we wouldn't be surprised if we get a lot more volatility before there's some peace in Washington. John, I got to say, what Jerry just said there, this idea that perhaps the market will impose some discipline on Washington goes to something that you said last week with Larry Kudlow, where you said, isn't it problematic that you have so many people losing their jobs at a time when you have markets rallying? Down in Washington, they don't care about the jobless rate as much as they do about what they get in terms of a signal from equities. I mean, you just have to wonder, what does that say about the deliver a deliberation process down in Washington, Well, I think it's embarrassing, Lisa and Jared. I think you can speak to that as well. If this market was 20% lower, if this equity market was down and down hard like it was in March, I think we'd see some follow-up in Washington, and we don't. Makes me wonder, Jared, for you, what's the cutoff point? What's the point at which you look at things down in Washington and think, it's not happening? Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's a tough call because our conversations with with folks in the in the sense down there is that everyone involved, basically everyone involved, understands the need for for more stimulus, the need for more aid, and they're just sort of uh, haggling about who gets what and who gets uh, you know credit for 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 pushing things through. Um, a, a little bit of real stress uh, can can overcome some of those challenges. So we do expect that. You know, whether it's a week from now or, or two or three weeks from now, at some point we do expect that there will be you know more stimulus. I guess it's just a question of the path we follow uh, to get there. If if you know, on the other hand, there was the the, the sense of um, a different calculation, the calculation that maybe some more economic stress now changes votes uh, for people you know in November in a way that they think is favorable. Um, that's something to really worry about. So if you started to hear, you will never hear messaging about that. But if you started to have yeah. a sense that that people are thinking in those terms, then that's something that's a very different market, a very different situation, something you definitely, um, you know, raise cash uh, on the back of. Jan, before we let you go, we need to talk about the 60-40 split. It's something that you and the team at Bank of America have been talking about for quite a while. In fact, ahead of the curve in many ways, plenty more people talking about this now, what to do with the 40 portion. And I just wonder the lessons of the last couple of days, the correlation between treasuries and growth and more broadly, therefore, the equity market as well. Joe, can you speak to that, the problems there? Well, look, we wrote this week that that the, the secular stagnation, this economic malaise has really started to blur the lines between asset classes. In some sense, you know, a long-term treasury bond is not that different from a high-flying tech stock that pays you a tiny dividend. Neither one gives you a positive income stream, you know, adjusted for inflation. And they both start to look really unattractive if we do see a world either of you know, stagflationary populism or a world in which industrial policy and other investments to boost productivity really change the game. Uh, and so that's why we suggest investors think not in terms of asset classes as much as in terms of the kinds of risk they want to take. In a world of ample liquidity, that means you can own gold. You can also own, you know, things like closed-in funds with a big discount. You can also own credit risk in a way that um, has less to do with its, 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 you know, designed as a fixed income instrument and more to do with where we are in the cycle and what we see as potential for fundamentals. Um, in any world, you know, those conventional uh, methodologies, conventional ways of allocating assets uh, start to make a little bit less sense. Investors need to be um, a little more flexible in their thinking. Jared, gold, a lot of people saying that it could be a hedge against equities, and yet they're moving in tandem. Can you reconcile that? I'd rather think about gold as a, as a kind of a measure of in some ways, at this point, you know, policy success. You've got you know 1.6% inflation. That's a modest recovery. It's not a huge breakout. You've got a Fed on hold. Um, Treasuries yield you know 0.6% or so. That negative 1% real yield is a kind of a signal from both the bond market and from gold moving in tandem that 
you can buy basically anything but nominal bonds, and you'll be you'll be better off. Uh, so in that sense, gold is a kind of a get out of here trade uh, from the perspective of the bond markets, and and I think that's the the signal investors are picking up. You see them rotating not just to gold but to other speculative things, to SPAC IPOs, to you know cryptocurrencies, all kinds of assets that otherwise wouldn't make sense if the cost to carry was really meaningful. Um, so and to the extent that we get policy success and inflation and growth are able to normalize, um, then you'll see investors you know, continue, I think, allocating to things that maybe they wouldn't have done in the past. Hey, Jared, great to catch you up. Our best to the team. Jared Wooded there Thanks. of Bank of America Securities. Let's get straight to Harry Chilangarian, shall we? BNP Paribas Head of Commodity Market Strategy. Harry, great to catch up with you, mate. Let's talk about it. What happened in the last couple of days? I think first and foremost, uh, gold has reached another historical high, and the question eventually was going to be when will be uh, when will people be taking profits? But I guess more fundamentally, what we're looking at at BNP Paribas is the leveling off and break-even inflation rates. So that's sort of stabilizing negative real rates where they're at right now. And that sort of removes uh, one factor of support for gold. And then on top of that, you start adding investor flows into silver, which is a sort of cheaper alternative than hedging your macro risk. Then, uh, then you could see the, the consolidation that's uh, taking place. Harry, yesterday's sell-off in gold, really violent. I mean, considering the fact that there weren't similar kinds of violent moves elsewhere. It was the biggest sell-off since April of 2013. Does this indicate a positioning squeeze, something about the nature of this trade that gives you pause about how much higher gold can go? Well, currently, in our view, uh, again, trying to link uh, gold to uh, sort of macroeconomic fundamentals, we really watch closely what U.S. real rates are doing. So with the nominals being relatively flattish, it's a question of, you know, did it still have the fuel to, to move higher? And oftentimes when you reach a historical peak and you have this kind of acceleration in prices, uh, the correction could be quite, uh, quite important. Now, given that uh, U.S. real rates uh, on a five-year basis are still at negative 1.23%, uh, there is support from a macro perspective for gold to hold on to uh, its recent gains. So we're thinking about gold uh, trading in the 1900s, 1950, uh, thereabouts, uh, before potentially having another rally uh, next year. Okay, uh, another. But from a, fundamentally, it's, it's still good. Okay, so another rally next year. Tom Keene took the day off to go buy some more jewelry uh, for Mrs. Keene to invest in gold. How much higher could we see the price go in the next heel of this, uh, in the next leg of this of this rally? Well, we're viewing it in our forecast of BNP Paribas the next leg coming in Q1 uh, next year, especially as we see realized inflation year on year benefiting from base effects, which would help that famous break-even inflation measure uh, move higher. Understanding that the Fed is going to keep yields really low, potentially even adopt yield curve control. And so on that basis, uh, with those break-evens moving higher and nominals remaining pretty much where they are, uh, you get that further impetus for gold to successfully move above 2,000 again. Harry, are you having new conversations, different conversations with a different pool of investors that maybe you weren't having back in 2011? Is there a new angle to this gold trade that wasn't there about 10 years ago? I, I suppose, uh, and you guys were mentioning it, uh, there's a, a lot of retail uh, interest that's happening. That I don't talk to retail investors, but uh, there's certainly a, a big shift in terms of retail interest, even Robinhood investors looking at gold. 
But I think uh, more prosaically, you have a, a number of institutional investors that are looking at gold as a very good uh, uh, macro hedge. Because uh, equity valuations being sky high, if you do have a correction there as a result of uh, disappointing economic outcome tied to the evolution of COVID, then gold's there uh, to hedge your portfolio. Harry, so, how effective uh, think, do you think uh, that will uh, be, given the positive correlation between gold and growth stocks at the moment? How effective do you think it will be as a hedge? Well, the hedge comes in really, uh, if you take losses on the equity side, then you will sell that gold portfolio, which obviously has seen a, a very big increase in price, so as to mitigate the, the losses you have elsewhere. That's, that's really its primary function. Harry, great to catch up with you, as always. Really good to see you. Harry Chinangar in there of being Paribas on our What is Happening with This Gold Market. Joining us now, straight out of London, James Bevan, CCLA Chief Investment Officer. James, great to hear your voice, sir. So let's get straight back to it. Is this rotation a head fake or something more sustainable? I certainly think that equities will grind higher because I absolutely believe that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury will continue to provide liquidity. And that has got to be good news for the quality growth companies that have been taking the market ever higher. However, I would found two notes of caution. One was the market reaction to the news from Russia yesterday that they had uh, found a vaccine for COVID-19. Now, although it was early stage, the market's initial reaction, I thought, was really interesting because what we saw was uh, that the the big tech stocks sold off while bank stocks rallied. Uh, it was also the case that precious metal prices dipped and bond yields rose. And I think this is a real taster of what will happen if the COVID-19 crisis passes by. But equally, I worry that investors have been very undiscriminating in terms of what they have been prepared to buy in this liquidity-driven melt-up. It is the case that we can make uh, sensible uh, investment decisions on quality stocks. And if you press me for where the S&P 500 might finish this year and next year, I wouldn't be at all surprised, given where bond yields are, that we don't get to 3,500 this year and 3,800 next year. Wow. But the villain of the piece, I think, is uh, distressed debt. Because when I look at the default volumes uh, in Q2 that came in at $41.1 billion. Now, that is in comparison with the previous record of $39.5 billion set back in 2009. Now, whilst liquidity can stop markets ending up in a credit crunch, they can't provide companies in trouble with cash flow. And sooner or later, those companies will be found out. And that's why I think it's so important to look through to what's really going on at the company's level, whether it's achieving sufficient revenues to justify its long-term access to the capital markets. So, in other words, an argument for active management. I want to stick on this idea of liquidity versus solvency, liquidity versus the recovery story. It seems to be, in me, that you believe in an, a further rally in equities, and yet you're saying it's going to remain a liquidity story, albeit with perhaps some progress on the virus front. How much can it can remain a liquidity story to sustain this type of rally? In other words, can it just be concentrated in the big tech names, have them drive the stock market higher with this idea that they will stay... Uh, solvent through this, even if you have those bankruptcies increase? Or do you expect there to be sort of some rotation to sustain that going forward? 
what, what I find very interesting is how many people, when challenged as where equity markets are going for, talk about mean reversion to long-term averages. And the story I hear often is that the forward price earnings multiple for the S&P 500 as an index is currently over 22 times. The average since 1960 is 15 times. And therefore, on that simple basis, equity markets are due uh, a very substantial markdown. However, that argument forgets what's happened to bond yields. And bond yields have been cratered in the way that we have described. And therefore, we can justify a much higher valuation for the equity market. And if one is going to think about the fair valuation of equity based on a company's return on equity, cost of equity, and growth, then actually the tech stocks still, in my view, look reasonably good value. Uh, I don't think this is the right moment to give up on quality growth. I worry that there are plenty of people talking about companies with high operational and financial gearing benefiting from a cyclical upturn. I just don't see that happening, and therefore I think that's a really dangerous strategy to follow. James, you've raised a really important point. In fact, a couple. So let's get to the first one. That's on benchmarking valuations through history. Can we just sit there for a moment, James? What's the effective way of doing that? Well, I think if you're going to look at history, you've got to be very clear about which portion of history you want to look at. And uh, I would say that uh, the uh, the, the really important issue is to, to look at the connection between bond yields and valuations, and therefore, by extension, the equity risk premium. Uh, so the forward return for taking equity risk relative to the current bond yield. And I would say there, we are still looking at uh, equities being cheap, and hence my expectation that we can get to 3500 for the S&P 500 for the end of the year. Uh, the story goes horribly wrong if bond yields rise very dramatically and that there is a sell-off in global treasuries. But I don't see central banks and governments permitting that to happen because to get rid of the real cost of the debt overhang that is now around the necks of the global economic participants, there has to be a period where inflation is considerably in excess of nominal bond yields, so that the real value of that debt is run down. So for me, the obvious long-term losers are the bondholders. The obvious long-term winners are investors in good quality companies, so long as they buy a decent free cash flow that's sustained. Well, James, this assumes they can control the yield curve. So let's assume they can, particularly here in the United States. Yep. Haven't they just fixed the equity game then? Doesn't that mean financials cannot work in this regime? Well, you know, interestingly, when I think about uh, financials, I would say two things. One is that we should not anticipate that the Treasury yield curve and the pricing of debt in the marketplace are one and the same. Uh, I mean, I am absolutely aware that there are companies issuing debt in the marketplace that yields that frankly look way too low for the riskiness uh, that they represent to investors. But nevertheless, there are uh, record uh, deals going through in the bond markets at sensible prices where banks, uh, if they replicate those yields in loans to customers, will be able to make 
sensible returns. The, the other part is that I think that there will be some real winners and yet some real losers within the banking sector. So I think that the muscularity of JP Morgan will mean that they will grow market share. They will come out of this with more pricing power. They have made some very significant acquisitions, as we know, in recent years. And I don't think that they have driven the efficiency gains of those acquisitions through to shareholder value as of yet. So I am a bull of JPM. You're a bull of JP Morgan. I want to look forward a couple of months when we start talking about the election. I'm old enough to remember we weren't talking about the virus and we weren't talking about the worst recession since the Great Depression and we were talking about trade tensions and tensions in general. This Saturday, the U.S. and China are going to talk about the phase one trade deal. They're going to assess the progress. China is still very much behind. How much does this factor into your trading at all? I mean, can this, is this a tradable event or factor into your investment theses or is this just basically more... Uh, sort of smoke on both sides leading to some protracted Cold War that's already in existence? No, I, I think it's a really important point. And I would say one of the reasons the dollar's weakness is the global concern that the U.S. may turn the current debate about the current account, so trade, into a debate about what happens on the capital account. And I would observe that people are of the view that trade tariffs simply hurt consumers, because if you're a Chinese company exporting to the States, you get your money for the product. We all know that the China government has been subsidizing exports. But the loser then is the consumer who has to pay more when the tariff is applied. On the capital account front, I think that Team Trump recognized that China has a huge demand for global capital huge chunks of the cash generated by U.S. quantitative easing ended up in China. I guess not many people have joined the dots, but that's the reality of the credit flows to China. And the U.S. is clearly going to look at this. And I think that one of the things that we can observe is that there has been very considerable borrowing of dollars outside of the U.S., which has depressed the value of the U.S. dollar. And were we to see... Uh, either an end to the aggravation that has been escalating between, the China, between China and the U.S., or actually an outright decision, so the uncertainty is removed on what will happen on the capital account, the dollar has room to rally. So I'm not of the school of thought that, uh, that the dollar is one way and one way only being down, and nor am I of the view that the RMB, China's currency, has any chance of becoming a global reserve currency. Hey, James, great to catch up. Wide-ranging interview there, James Wonderful Bevan. To speak with you. Good to hear from you, sir. You sound safe and well too. That makes me happy. James Bevan of CCLA. <music> Jeffrey Wright joining us now. You raise your group, US analyst Jeffrey Kamala Harris getting the VP pick. I just wonder for enthusiasm, which is what. Former VP Joe Biden has been criticised for that he lacks the enthusiasm in his base that maybe the current president, Donald Trump, has. Does this do anything to make inroads there? It may help a bit. I, I think it probably helps somewhat with African-American Democrats, who are a very important constituency for the party. But I think in general, President Trump is going to do all the bring all the enthusiasm for Democrats. I, I think as the, the campaign really kicks into gear uh, as you saw in the 2018 midterms, you know the the negative partisanship, the the feelings of hatred that Trump inspires in the Democratic base. That's going to be, I think, enough motivation 
Uh, and so Harris is really a pick to to do no harm. She's uh, a pretty safe pick, and I think you you start with somebody who's not going to hurt you, and and she certainly does that. All right. Well, given the fact that she's a safe pick and she's in line with where uh, Joe Biden was going, or that it seems to be the party line, what does that mean in terms of the U.S.'s international policy? And I say this ahead of trade discussions between the U.S. and China, an increasing hard line from President Trump that President Trump will probably be uh, campaigning on. How different will it be in the Democratic candidate? Uh, I don't think Harris's selection changes much there. Trump has tried to attack Biden over China. It's been, I think, tough sledding for them so far because the only thing that voters really care about right now is the coronavirus and the economy. Uh, and so, you know, I, Harris, I think, comes with, uh, you know, some political help for the ticket. I don't think she brings a whole lot of policy heft or, or changes to the the places that that Biden was already in on policy and particularly on foreign policy, Biden has a very well developed operation from his years in the Senate and, and his time as vice president. So I think her influence on uh, on foreign policy is probably going to be pretty small. Maybe on on some domestic policy areas, you see her her impact. All right, let's go to the domestic policy then. We really don't have any kind of agreement. In fact, we've got stalemate in Washington, D.C. when it comes to the second round of fiscal support, even as we have an unemployment rate. It seems to be uh, stabilizing here above that 10 percent rate. Do voters in general, from what you can tell, view President Trump as doing the right thing and winning this round in the stalemate with Democrats? Or do they do you see uh, increasing ambivalence about which party has the better plan here economically? Yeah, I, I don't think that voters in general are paying close enough attention to understand the sort of machinations going on in Congress. I think basically the longer they go without a deal, the more it hurts Trump. It's generally a very simple equation. The incumbent is on the hook for the economy, whether that's fair or not. I mean, you can say that Democrats are holding out, uh, but ultimately Trump owns the economy. And the longer it goes without additional fiscal support, uh, you know, the more severe this this sort of mini downturn is going to be, I think. So I think regardless of who blames who for what, Trump is on the hook here because he's the president. He owns the economy for better or worse. Jeffrey, do you still assume that we get a deal done in Washington before the end of the month? Yeah, we maybe not before the end of this month. I think there's a, a good chance now that it stretches into September. But I do think we get a deal uh, before the end of September, before the, the government funding deadline, which provides sort of a, another forcing mechanism for Congress. What are the signposts that you're looking for that might change your calculation and say there's a chance here we won't get a deal? Because everyone we're speaking to still assumes deal. Maybe at the end of the month, maybe at some point in September, but deal and something around $1.5 trillion. What would change that for you, Jeff? I think if if Trump decides that he doesn't want a deal anymore, which is, you know, I think possible, I, I think that move would be against his own political interests because he really needs fiscal support for the economy right now. But, you know, we've seen him make make moves in the past that were not in his own interests and you know, it's possible that he gets so frustrated with Pelosi and Schumer and the and the way that they've tried to handle this negotiation that he walks away from it. I, I think that's the that's the most plausible way that you you don't get a deal. Jeffrey, great to catch up as always. Our best of the team, Jeffrey, right there of Eurasia Group. Special coverage of the Democratic Convention starting Monday night on Bloomberg TV and on radio as well. And then the week after, of course, the Republican Convention kicking off. Full coverage of that as well.
Let's continue the conversation, shall we, with Anna Han, Wells Fargo Securities Equity Strategist. Anna, great to catch up with you. Let's start with a simple one. I wonder whether we are overestimating Europe's recovery and underestimating what is happening here in the United States. What's your take? Well, we saw Europe kind of be one of the first areas to fall with the COVID crisis. And usually we're of the belief that first in, first out. But what they didn't have necessarily was the size and the depth of the monetary and the fiscal stimulus that we've had here in the States. So while they are progressing, if you want to put neck to neck, it's a bit difficult to say who's the front runner here. Anna, how do you price in a delayed second fiscal support deal in Washington, D.C.? Since we are not getting one, it doesn't look like this week, and it's unclear when exactly the Republicans and Democrats will get together. Well, yeah, we sort of missed the uh, deadline this time, right, before the summer recess has started. But what we do know is we have another deficit or a budget deficit uh, plan that's going to be due at the end of September. And towards that fall, as we get closer to the U.S. elections, it's going to become a big indicator of how the economy is going to go forward and what things are going to shake out for equities in particular. Anna, what do you look at? What data to give you confidence that there is some sort of continuing recovery and not the stalling out that a lot of people were talking about when they were looking at the high frequency data? Well, I think you have to acknowledge that we are seeing some stalling. It's been a bit slower since, let's say, late June and July, but we are seeing far from a reversal. And as we get that sequentially improved story in indicators, for example, like in earnings, or you see even with investor confidence, weakened from before, maybe a month ago, but still much better than we were in the winter, those are the signs that things are progressing slowly but forward. Are you comfortable embracing cyclicality? At this point, we're still risk on, John. We do think that cyclicality, in particular with its COVID data, beta will be the winning play longer term. But that's not to say that this melt-up doesn't have us a little more cautious than usual. What are the cyclical parts of this equity market, Anna, that you would be uncomfortable with? Just breaking it down from sector to sector if you can. Well, when you dig in really sector to sector, where you think about cyclicality and where value may be uncomfortable is where is the traps? Where are the areas of the market where they look like they're cheap, but they're not going to have that multiple expansion as rapidly or as easily as you would suspect? And for now, what's been a difficult spot for us is probably the financials market. A lot to do with also the suppressed yields. The financials, the banks and low yields, which are going to be here with us for a long time. Anna, great to catch up with you. Anna Had, Wells Fargo Securities Equity Strategist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.